Welcome to Footnotes and Witness. I'm Deborah J. McKenzie, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find Him in our own story. Let us be faithful witnesses to His character and glory. So we've been talking about the disciples, the apostles, Jesus's crew, and what can we see about Jesus based on his decisions of who these people were? Why did he pick these people? What do we see about Jesus and his character based on the people that he chose to do ministry with? These people were important, not because they were special, but because Jesus is special. He picked them. He wasn't afraid of their outbursts or their personalities. He wasn't afraid of family dynamics. And we're going to continue to see that today with James and John. So James and John both lived in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen. So it stands to reason that since they lived in the same town and they had the same profession, they might have known Peter and Andrew. So James actually is the Hebrew name Jacob, which means supplanter. And John means Jehovah is a gracious giver. They are first mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. The main difference that I see with these brothers is that one of them is an author, a writer, and one of them is not. So James is not the author of the book of James, and John is the author of the book of John. And we'll talk a little bit more about John's writings in a minute. James is also the only apostle whose death is actually mentioned in scripture, and that's in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. These guys had a nickname. They were called the Sons of Thunder, and they're called that in the list of apostles in Mark chapter 3. So that's Mark chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And don't forget, any scripture references will be down in the show notes or the episode description. So it's widely accepted that that nickname came from the account of these two brothers making a bold request to bring down fire on their enemies. And we're going to look at that in Luke chapter 9. And the verses are 51 through 54. So let me set the stage for you. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and they're going to go through Samaria. And he wasn't welcome because he was going to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans and the Jews do not get along. So there's a huge, long, complicated backstory about why they don't get along. And it goes all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 16. So 1 Kings tells us about all the kings, the kings that were over Israel, and most of them were pretty terrible. So one of them called Omri, that's O-M-R-I. So he was a king of Israel. His name literally means pupil of Jehovah. But unfortunately, he was one of the not so good kings. And this was in the northern kingdom. He was the captain of the army for 12 years under King Allah, and then he rose to power. His son, his name is Ahab, and if that rings a bell, yeah, I understand. He also was not a good guy. <laughs> Ahab bought the hill of Samaria in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 24, and he built the city of Samaria. So what is said about Omri is in 16, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25, and it says, but Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. And then his son, Ahab, is described in verse 30, and he is described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. So son takes the bad role model of the father and doubles down and does it even worse. But of Ahab, it said in 1633, 
Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. This is the legacy of Samaria. It was started, the culture was made, the city was built by a really evil king. Basically, James and John are normal everyday Jews. They have a preconceived notion about their neighbors as Samaritans, and all Jews did. They weren't special or particular in that way. This was the history between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews would actually walk far out of the way to avoid the city of Samaria when they traveled. Now, we have this notion of Samaritans being good and generous because of the story of the Good Samaritan. And that just proves that Jesus spent a lot of time and effort there redeeming the Samaritans, and he did. And we know that because we have to explain the history of why James and John wanted to rain down fire on the Samaritans. For Jews like James and John, these were basically like white trash, lower citizens. It was a city of other. There was nothing good about them, even though they're all from the same family. Samaritans were from the northern kingdom. They're all descendants of Israelites. And Jesus is going to spend a lot of time actually in Samaria, ministering to them and preaching to them the good news. And they're going to believe. So that's a lot of backstory. But the context is important. And this is why whenever you see cross references in your Bible and they're to the Old Testament, it's always really good to go back and look at what those cross references are. Now, your cross-reference is going to take you back to one verse, usually, and it's always important read the whole chapter that it's in, so that way you can get the whole picture. But for the early Jews, these people knew these stories, most of them by heart. They knew the name of Omri, and they knew the name of Ahab, and that's how the prejudice of Samaria survived. So when we turn to Luke chapter 9, and we see this account in verse 51 through 56, we can understand a little bit better about why James and John reacted the way that they did. So Jesus's crew, he's, they're moving on, they're going to Jerusalem, and he sends some people ahead of him to seek preparations for the group. Now they're traveling, so that could be like a place to sleep or even just a place to sit and rest and get out of the sun. It could have been preparations for um, getting more water or shopping or food, whatever they needed. But verse 53 tells us that Jesus wasn't welcome. And James and John, they get mad. They get offended on behalf of Jesus. So Jesus is not offended. James and John are. And their response is in verse 54. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) This is so bold of James and John. Not only is this kind of early on in the ministry, and they are like, we can do this. We can tell. They don't ask, can we? They said, should we? Can we tell fire to come down from heaven? They did not feel like it was a question of whether or not they're able to, but they're seeking Jesus's approval. And we see Jesus's character in his response. He turns and he rebukes James and John. So a rebuke is one of those words that I think we use in church all the time, but we don't really use in our day-to-day vocabulary. And so let's just define it really quickly. It means to admonish to charge sharply, to censor severely. So this was an express sharp disapproval or criticism of their behavior. They wanted to rain down fire and calamity on the people who were mean to Jesus. And so this is where we get the names sons of thunder. But basically, Jesus rebuked them. This to me feels like that old parenting adage. Maybe you're a parent, maybe you're not, but I'm sure your mama told you at some point, two wrongs don't make a right. (laughs) 
Now these brothers made an even more outlandish request, but Jesus's response is different. It's patient correction and not rebuke. So we're going to look at the story in Mark chapter 10, and it's verses 32 through 45. So here's the story. Jesus is walking with his crew again, and he's explaining that he's going to die. He's telling them what's going to have to happen. And it's not going to be nice or quick. And he's trying to prepare them. So starting in verse 35, James and John, they go all in. So here's what it says. James and John, sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Whoa. Okay, just bold right out the gate. (laughs) I can't even imagine, like I have a hard time even in my prayer saying, Jesus, do what I tell you to. But that's what they, (laughs) that's what they did. They're like, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Yikes. Yep. James and John asked to sit on either side of Jesus's throne. So I think we read that and we're like, wow, they're so arrogant. They're so prideful and boastful. But that's from our experience of human hearts and what we generally think about people. But we can see in Jesus's response, he knew their heart and he sees that they're coming from maybe a different place because his response is, you don't know what you're asking. And then he asked the brothers if they can endure everything that he has to endure. He just told them he's going to a painful death. And in that death, it's going to be mocking and spitting and flogging. It's not going to be pretty. But the brothers, they're not dissuaded. They say, we are able. (laughs) So Jesus tells them that they will indeed endure some of the things that Jesus has to endure. But he says, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This is such an interesting response because it's not a no, by the way. It's kind of like a, the decision has already been made and you need to be patient. There's so much patience and mercy in this decision. It reminds me of Job. Whenever Job demands answers and God comes down and he tells Job not an answer to his question, but he displays to Job that he is all powerful and all knowing and Job is not. And just to be patient and to trust in the Lord. Of course, the other 10 that are walking with him, because remember, he was walking with his whole crew. They had something to say about this. It says that they got indignant. They heard James and John make this huge, bold request. And obviously, well, not obvious because we can't know because we weren't there. But I assume that they would have felt just like I would have felt if I had heard that. Like, how dare you ask that? Do you think you're better than us? But obviously, Jesus knew their hearts. So unlike the Samaritan incident, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He actually confirms their desires and says, you know, basically, don't worry about it. You're not in charge. Be patient. And the rest of the crew is indignant, it says. They're like, say what? But Jesus knew their hearts too. Even amongst our friends and our family, it is human nature to compare one another and to secretly rank one another. But Jesus gently instructs all of them. Starting in verse 42, he says this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man, which is Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how we can be in the world and not of the world. This is how Christ followers are different. Jesus is saying, of course, it's normal to have authority and expect to be revered in that authority. Everything around us, all of our other cultures around us says, when you're in charge, you can lord it over people. And he says, but this is not for us. That path is not what we are going to do. He didn't tell James and John that the request was evil. He gently corrected their perception of power, authority, and service with mercy and patience. And it is my assumption and my opinion. You should think about it and make your own. But my assumption is that Jesus knew their hearts. And these two different responses by Jesus were because of their own heart and motivation. He knew what they were after. So when they asked to bring down fire from heaven and consume their enemies, it was because their egos were hurt. But when they say, we want to sit with you at your right and your left hand, it wasn't because they were looking for their own ego, but because they did not want to be separated from Jesus. We can't actually know. We don't know their hearts, but we can see that Jesus's character, whenever their hearts are in the right place, is so patient and so careful. And only when they were working against their enemies did Jesus rebuke them. So they're actually called the pillars of the church. Paul in the book of Galatians calls them that. This is Galatians 2.9. So Paul eventually, we're going to talk about him at the end of the series, he would become a follower of Jesus. Sometimes he gets lumped into the apostle circle, but he wasn't actually the contemporary of Jesus. He wasn't in his ministry and seeing his miracles. Paul did write a lot of our New Testament and a lot of our scriptures come from him, but that wasn't until after Jesus had already been crucified, died, and buried. So when he's telling the church in Galatia why he has the authority to speak to them in the first place, he says it's because of Peter, James, and John that they gave him credence, that they saw in him that he had been saved and that the grace had been given him. So this is Galatians chapter 2 verse 9. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcised. So just side note, Cephas is the Greek word for stone or rock. So that's why we know that he's talking about Peter. So we can see that the perception of these brothers is not one of ego and braggadocious who asked to rain down fire and sit next to Jesus, but that they were pillars of the early church. Let's talk about some particular things about John. He was the author of the book of John, and he did write other books. He wrote Revelations and most likely 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John is not actually mentioned in the book of John, but is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. His death is not mentioned in our Bible, but some of the apocryphal books claim that he ascended into heaven. So basically, that means that he just skipped death and went right into heaven. Those accounts come from the apocryphal books. So when we're looking at these brothers, my first question is, what is the boldest thing that you have ever prayed for? While we can see that Jesus didn't necessarily grant either one of these prayers, one was even rebuked. 
But the rebuke was not that they asked, but where their hearts were at. It's good that we pray for bold things. It's good that we come to God with our desires. Whether they're good desires or not, we can still bring them to him. And even in a rebuke, there's correction. He's trying to show them a different way. So what's the boldest thing that you've ever prayed for? What would you consider worth writing about? John decided to write a letter of faith. If you read the book of John, that's basically what it is. He's trying to prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, this whole study for me came about because I wasn't really sure who wrote the book of John. And as I started asking around about the book of John, lots of people said it was their favorite book. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. My personal favorite is that he explains the parables. So Jesus spoke in riddles those parables. They're little stories with a moral behind it, but it wasn't always clear. And John actually will tell you, he'll tell you the parable and then say, Jesus was talking about this, and this is how we know. And it's so helpful. I think especially if you were raised in the church, you might be afraid to say, I don't like the parables, because you're basically saying, I don't like Jesus's words. And it can be tough to admit that in Bible group or with your small group or whatever. But I think it's normal to struggle with those things because they're not clear. So one of the reasons I love OT so much is because it's history. There are facts and dates and times and names and places. And you can look all those things up. Stories about fishing for men and mustard seeds are not quite as clear. So if you have problems with the parables, start with John. He'll be super helpful. Another thing that people say they love about the book of John is because the way that it's structured. And I won't go into all of that. I'm super nerd and other people have done it much better than I could. But the way that it's structured is really fun to read. That's something that you've struggled with, the parables or the gospels. Get an app where it reads the Bible to you and just sit and let John wash over you. It takes about two hours. So if you can watch a movie, you can listen to the book of John. And it's going to be a much better use of your time. And with that, I'm going to leave you with Hebrews 13 verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.